So the judge sentenced me to 10 days in jail. Does that require an explanation? So before the Supreme Court cases, McCullen v. Coakley out of Massachusetts and Shank versus Pro-Choice out of Western New York, judges had a free hand in restricting activity on sidewalks outside of businesses where abortions were committed. And I was part of a clergy volunteer group that would provide information and services to women and their companions coming and going to the seven abortion businesses in the Buffalo area. And I was volunteering on a sidewalk outside a post office behind which was an office building within which was one of these businesses. And so we were passing out Bibles with a hopeful message and information on uh, medical services, financial services, and uh, housing for women in crisis pregnancies. And the judge had ordered that uh, we were not permitted to do this on the public sidewalk. We would subsequently uh, challenge that in federal court and, with God's grace, win in my own case, Shank versus Pro-Choice in the United States Supreme Court, and then 20 years later, the Supreme Court would uh, solidify that win, opening the sidewalks to this kind of benevolent activity through another case from Massachusetts. So that explains why I was sentenced to 10 days in jail. But the judge was uh, considerate, and he gave me three days to put my effects in order, Uh, before I would report to the jail. That night, I was invited to a reception in City Hall for the mayor. And uh, so I went to the reception, and when I stepped in, here was the judge. And uh, he had his back to me, and he was talking with one of the city councilmen. And he was flailing his hands, and he was saying, these anti-abortion pro-life people, I had them in my court today and I didn't know what to do with them. And the city councilman said to the judge, well, why don't you talk to him? He's standing behind you. (laughs) And the judge turned around and his jaw dropped. (laughs) I did my time in jail and I came out of jail and I had a funeral of a prominent business person in my community, in the church. And so we were ascending the chancel, and I turn around, and who's seated right here in the second row in the church but the judge? He had been a business partner of this man. Now I'm in the robe. So after the funeral, I turned the final commendation to my assistant pastor, and I went around the back of the church to make sure that I would be standing in, in the way of the judge as he exited. So he came up to the door, and uh, he said, hello, reverend. 
And I said, hello, judge. And uh, he said, you must hate me. And I said, no, your honor, I don't hate you. I said, I love you. And there's nothing I would love more than to be your friend, your prayer partner, whatever way I can be of help to you. And he said, I know that. He said, you know how I know that? I said, how, judge? He said, do you remember when you were in my courtroom and I sentenced you? I said, yeah, judge, I, I remember that. He said, well, you remember that night you came to City Hall, the mayor's reception? I said, yes, judge, I remember. He said, and I saw you there. He said, do you remember what you did then? I said, no, judge, I, I don't. And then he reached out and he hugged me. He embraced me as if to mimic what I had done with him at City Hall. Now, to this day, I have no memory of hugging the judge at City Hall. I still think an angel hugged him, and he thought I did. But he said, when you did that, I knew you had the love of God in you. And he said, I'm sorry for what happened that day. And we took a walk around the church that day twice and bonded as good friends. And I would then subsequently lead a prayer service and Bible study in his chambers in state court regularly. The love of God. There's one verse in our second reading tonight that I'd like us to focus on, and that's 1 John 3.18. Children, let us love not in word and speech, but in deed and truth. This one verse is like a preamble to the whole rest of John's epistle, letter. In fact, it's a perfect ramp-up to the fourth chapter of John. There is a lot of love in these letters. But listen to the love in the fourth chapter of 1 John. Beloved, let us love. We also must love. He who abides in love abides in God. We love because he first loved us. So there is a lot of love there. Notice that John is writing by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and he writes to unknown readers, right? He's writing to us today. And he says, children, in order to grasp the depth of the bonds of love reflected by John in his letter, we have to put ourselves into the place 
of parents and grandparents and their children and grandchildren. So let's transport ourselves into our relationship with our children and with our grandchildren. That's the bonds of love that John has for all of his readers. He says, children, let us love. Now, when he says, let us love, he reaches for that old, ancient Greek word. There are how many words for love in the Greek of the New Testament? Who can tell me? Four, right? You'll find them in C.S. Lewis's book. You know C.S. Lewis? The author of the Chronicles of Narnia? In his book, The Four Loves, there are four loves in the biblical language of Greek. And the highest form of love is agapeo. Say that with me. Agapeo. Agapeo was an old ancient word in Attic Greek that had fallen out of use. And the early Christians went back and took this word out of uh, mothballs and they dusted it off and they reintroduced it to describe God's love. Because really, how can you love God the same way you love chocolate? You just can't do it. You need a bigger, better word for love. And so they introduced this word agapeo. And uh, some linguists have described this as love which seeks the best for the other even at the expense of yourself. And isn't this what parents and grandparents do? I mean, really. You love the other even at the expense of yourself. Who chooses sleepless nights? Who chooses dirty diapers? Parents love their children and seek the best for their children even at the expense of themselves. And this is the way agapeo, this old Greek word for love, is used in the New Testament. Now, John says, children, let us love, gape love, agapeo, let us love not in word and speech. Now, it's important. What was that? It's important to say, I love you, isn't it? Isn't it important to be able to say, I love you? That's important. We have to be able to express our love verbally. So it is important to say, I love you. I was going to experiment by saying, turn to the person next to you just now and say, I love you. 
Okay, you did it. Some of you did. I, I didn't say do it. I said I was going to experiment. You know, I, uh, I've always thought that the best way to raise a collection in church is to have everybody take out their wallets and, and hold them up and then pass them to your neighbor and let them make the... <laughs> so we can... No, no pastor's ever taken me up on that. Uh, but we can, we can express our love verbally. We can love in word and speech. But it has to go farther than that, doesn't it? We have to be able to demonstrate our love. We have to be able to show our love. And this is where our deeds come. Children, let us love not in word and speech. And in the context, if I were translating this, I would put the word alone. It's not there in the Greek, I agree, but I'd put alone. Let us not love in word and speech alone, but in deed and in truth. We demonstrate our love in our service to one another, our deeds. We can express our love. I call this proclamation and demonstration. We proclaim God's love. We can express our love verbally, but we demonstrate it through our deeds. And after all, what was Christ's descending from heaven, walking the earth, healing the sick, delivering the tormented, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, and finally surrendering himself on the tree of cursing, what was that but the demonstration of his love? And so, children, let us not love in word and speech alone, but in deed and in truth.